the reality um, is that we have to begin to wrestle with those things that make us feel uncomfortable. This is a book that I think is going to encourage you, challenge you, but hopefully in the end, just give you hope for the future. And really, if we are not challenging ourselves, are we growing? That's the question I had asked myself while I was reading this book. I'm Andy here on the 30 Second Book Club podcast, a place for people who want to read more books and be in book clubs, but don't have time to do either. Sitting down with Kara Meredith, and her book is called The Color of Life, A Journey Toward Love and Racial Justice. I think one of the first things that I've been having a lot of conversations with lately, um, or just conversations around lately with folks, uh, is the idea of choice. And, um, and I do write about this in my book a little bit as well, but, um, it is a choice to, for many, for some of us, uh, for those of us who identify as white or of European American descent, it's a choice to engage in these conversations. Um, but that's not the reality for everyone. And, um, especially for people of color, for our black and brown brothers and sisters, that's not a reality in their everyday lives. Um, and so for many of us, and again, this is me speaking as a white person, there is a waking up that happens um, and it is a choice to wrestle with privilege and to begin to listen and learn and speak out, especially if this has not been part of our story or part of our narrative or part of um, what we've ever engaged in before. And yet we, we get back to this point or to this place where but people are dying. And I think that is part of the reality. That is the reality um, that many of us are waking up to right now. So how do we then change the systems um, that are benefiting some, but not all? And we'll dig into that a little bit more. I was just thinking about, um, you know, early on in the book, you talk about uh, fear, okay. how it's driven the human race and it swallows our conversation. I just thought that was such a powerful mental picture. So, you know, how do we, how do we go past that? I, I think there's still a lot of fear, uh, even now about how to talk about difficult subjects when it comes to race and how do we, how do we go past that and have those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the fear that I write about, um, ironically, a lot of the fear, um, stem, stems or stemmed from, uh, conversations of inter interracial marriage I'm in an interracial marriage. I'm raising mixed race children. And that's a big part of my story. That's a part of the book as well. Um, but really, a lot of the a lot of what prohibited um, interracial marriage. Uh, this is over 50 years ago now, but from being legalized was fear, fear of what would happen um, if and when uh, those who were not of the same race married, and what would happen. There was a fear of children. There was a fear of um, this is not my own word, but of the spawn. Uh, that came from that or that stemmed from those unions, um, if children do come. And so whether we're talking about that specific subset of fear or whether we're just talking about fear in general, um, I think many of us, were, we're afraid to get it wrong. We're afraid that we will offend. And maybe this is, and, and certainly this is me speaking as a white person, but um, we're, we're afraid that um, we'll destroy relationships uh, there's a there's a, a litany of fear that exists, and yet I think we can come back to uh, we can certainly come back to scripture, uh, and we can we can look at um, we can look at Paul's words that uh, love uh, triumphs over fear, um, and we can center ourselves on that. We can center ourselves on uh, the conversations that Jesus had and or the actions that he um, showed in in choosing love over fear. I love the prayer that you had um, 
at the end of the chapter, three years in Mississippi, the very end, you, you pray, you know, Lord, give me uh, the eyes to see and the ear to hear the pain and the hurt around me. What a vulnerable prayer. And, and did did God answer that prayer pretty quickly after asking that? Absolutely. Um, and it's a prayer that is is still, uh, <laughs> I may not utter it uh, every day, but it's a prayer that has become a reality. It's a prayer that has become my reality. Uh, certainly within um, within the walls of my house, uh, but the interactions that I have. And I think that's where once we begin to enter into um, pain, once we begin to see injustice, we can't not see um, pain and injustice anymore. We can't not um, be immune to it. Uh, I think that um, certainly if we're talking about God or the spirit, I think there is an opening of our eyes um, that we can't run from it anymore. That That is most definitely what has happened um, over the last couple of months uh, with the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and other individuals who have lost their lives. Um, that I, I think many of us, again, have started waking up, not to not even so much to the conversation or to the narrative, but uh, we've, be, we've begun to woke, or we've begun um, to wake up to the pain. Um, and from that, there's a there's a different, deeper response. I, I think part of the waking up too, and this is tough. I'd be interested to see uh, what you say about this. There's a lot of guilt too, and I don't mm-hmm. know. Do you think that's productive to have that guilt? Is that a natural thing? And um, sometimes I'm just afraid that people will do things out of guilt that aren't necessarily always good. So maybe how do we go from guilt to uh, what's a better word for that even? It's, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That, that I think sometimes we do things out of a guilt and then it's not an actual um, a reaction. You know, maybe we're just trying to do something to please somebody else to think that that's, that's what they want us to do or, or see. And, and how do we get past that to actually have uh, not just a superficial um, a change, but have that real change to go past the guilt? Yeah, a lot of the conversations I've been having lately have um, stemmed or come back to a singular phrase or response, and there might also be a better way of saying this, but um, reminding folks and reminding myself that this is not about you, this is not about me. Um, and, and again, this might be uh, directed toward, toward a specific, specifically toward a white audience, but when we are talking about guilt, um, when we are talking about shame, um, I think it is there. There is a natural progression. Uh, I mean, there, there's a, a, a stack of books that we could read that um, are all about the, the progression when folks enter into the conversation, and there is a natural space for both guilt and shame. But I think there's also within that, there's an invitation to move beyond that and to say, well, wait a minute, I, I can feel this way and it is uh, legitimate and it is allowed, I, I am allowed to feel this, but I also have a responsibility to move past it and to get through it. And in that way, I have a responsibility of letting this not be about me, but about being about those who have been affected. And so um, I'm going to move past this. So, so what does it mean to be be in that space, but also to, to um, exist beyond it and to realize that it's not about us. We're speaking um, about those who, again, have, um, who have not benefited from the systems that many of us have benefited from, um, us being those of European American descent. So what does it mean to be in that place, but to also not let guilt or shame be the driving force 
uh, and to realize that, um, that, that this is not actually about our story or our feelings, but this is about those who are losing their lives right now. So um, the incredible the, the book is incredible and and, and I, I don't want to, to gloss over this um, you know your your father in law is an incredible civil rights pioneer and a lot of your story is you just talking to him about things like that and I just thought it was incredible you know in uh, your chapter uh, Imago Day Imago Imago Day I don't know I Imago Day yeah <laughs> I should not have pronounced these things oh. the, the image of God the image of God right right go. right. Uh, that you have a conversation uh, with him and he says, nobody, nowhere, anytime can solve the problems of anybody else. All they can do is understand. Mm-hmm. Such a, that's such a profound, uh, profound saying. How did that, how did that um, kind of direct you after that? Because I feel like that's kind of one of those transformed things that you hear that and you think, okay, that gives me permission to go to a different place. Yeah, absolutely. So for your listeners who don't know, my father-in-law um, is a man named James Meredith. Uh, he was the first black man to um, integrate into the University of Mississippi in the early 60s. Um, and then four years later, that was in 62, he led the Meredith March Against Fear, uh, which was um, essentially, if we're going back to that conversation of fear, it was about um, the fear that existed within the African-American population when it came to voting. Uh, even though the um, Voting Rights Act had been passed, there was still a lot of fear and folks weren't voting. So he decided to set out for um, a one man's march across uh, some of the southern states uh, in order to um, bring about, uh, in order to alleviate that fear. Um, And he was shot on the second day. And from that, um, that particular march uh, became the last greatest march of the civil rights movement. So for me, in answer to your question, when so there were so many profound moments, it's my, my book is not, um, it's a spiritual memoir, but it's also, um, an historical memoir. Uh, and I mean, there are, there are a lot of different elements that go into it. And like you said, there were, were a lot of conversations that simply happened with um, my father-in-law. And I think one of the things, um, that maybe I didn't realize until later on, but he believed in me before I believed in myself. And so when I think about um, that particular quote, uh, I mean, honestly, it was happening, happening in a moment of frustration. He's, <laughs> I mean, he's, he, he signed off on everything that I wrote. Uh, he allowed me to uh, write what I wrote. Uh, he's, a very, he's a very diplomatic, very um, militaristic man. Um, he uh, says what he wants and what he thinks, and he's not going to make any apologies. And so that particular um, sentence, I mean, he was speaking truth and he was speaking truth certainly about um, our collective identities um, across the U.S. and um, whether we identify as people of color or as white. But he was also speaking specifically to me. And in a, in a sense, his words also um, also freed me up um, to figure it out on my own time. I think um, the the um, you take a, de- a deeper look into in that same chapter about the the woman at the well, mm-hmm. and I, I I had never looked at it the way that you talked about it. That you know, there's a reason why her history was kind of gone into so much, and and what, what that you know what we can glean from that as we interact with others too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that is one of my favorite stories uh, and or biblical accounts, if we want to say that. Um, but I, I sat with that passage off and on for a couple of years, quite honestly. And I mean, I'm always fascinated with um, with the stories of women in the Bible. Um, certainly, if we look at, um, at, at history, uh, uh, the cultural identities of women 2000 years ago, they were second class citizens. Um, and so there's a reason why um, so few women are named and or why so few, excuse me, why so few stories are about women in particular, but even more so why so few women are named. So we have the Marys and uh, Martha and a couple of other apostles, but there's not a whole lot of women otherwise who are being named, at least not in the New Testament. Um, but this particular story, the more I sat with it, I, I think part of it was also there was the moving beyond um, my own evangelical interpretation, that which I had kind of camped out in for quite a while, um, which centered on her sin. Um, and because she had a past, so to speak, because uh, she had had five husbands and the man that she was living with now was not her husband, I centered on that part of the story and um, on how Jesus, uh, for a long time, I centered on that part of the story and how Jesus um, essentially came in and saved the day. But as I spent more time with the passage, there's a reason why um, why John told that story. There's a reason why he told that story of that particular woman. And the truth is that the particularities of her um, identity, which included uh, who she is as a woman, which included her past, which included who she was as a biracial woman. Uh, the Samaritans were biracial um, individuals 2000 years ago. That's how they were seen. Uh, both because of religious beliefs, but also because of racial identity. Um, so as I looked at all of those things collectively, there was a mutual exchange that happened between them. And it wasn't just about Jesus top down coming in and saving her, but it was about how he elevated her, how he elevated her in conversation and in elevating her, how he, um, how he made her his beloved, um, how he lifted her up and lifted up where she was um, in the narrative. So for me, I, when I think about that and when I think about what that means for all of us, uh, what does it mean for us to expand our viewpoints and um, to listen and learn from the stories that we haven't, um, of those whom we haven't always listened and learned from before? What does it mean to uh, lift up and to dig into the particularities of personhood? Because these particularities as um John showed us through the person of Christ in this story, those particularities matter deeply to Jesus. Speaking of, of, of opening up our eyes when it comes to that stuff, um, you, you have a whole chapter just talking about not noticing privilege and mm -hmm. um, opening your eyes to things like that. So how can somebody just practically who's listening right now says, I, I, I want to, um, I, I, I want my eyes to be open to this, to see what I've just been blind to for so long. What, what, what would you suggest? Yeah, I, I mean, maybe this, maybe this is going to be the resounding theme of um, my year, but I think it starts with that, that gentle nudging of privilege of realizing that privilege is not about you. Mm. Um, there's a, an author, she's not um, a Christian author, but uh, Levy Ajaye, and she writes in her, um, in her book, which is actually a humor memoir, she, as a black woman, she writes about how privilege is not actually about you, but it's about uh, those who don't have what it's about what those who don't have what you have don't have. 
if that makes sense. And mm. so I think part of it um, is that for those of us who identify as white, maybe it starts with a question of curiosity. And um, I know that privilege, just as hearing the word, the, the phrase white privilege, or even white supremacy, that can be a very negative, flesh tingling word. And yet the reality um, is that we have to begin to wrestle with those things that make us feel uncomfortable. Um, so I, I, I would start with um, asking that question. I would start with um, picking up books or reading articles that you can dig into, even if you don't agree, but that you can begin to learn from. For those of us who are white, um, I think it, it also mean, it, it means we dig into the stories um, from people of color and we begin to listen and learn from those who um, maybe don't look like us in order to help help put words and experiences around um, the privileges that we have naturally been given that others have not been given. I think it, that ties in really well to something you talk about later on in the book, um, the uh, experience that you had when you went to the Museum of uh, African American History mm-hmm. and just this idea as you left uh, of lamenting. And uh, I think it's a, it, it's probably one of the things that I try to avoid too. I try to avoid conflict mm. just in general because I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> but, you know, you, you talk about that, you know, we're not made to experience only a single emotion. Talk a little bit more about, you know, the power of lament. Absolutely. So, um, as you were saying that, I, I sat here thinking, I wonder if he's a nine on the Enneagram, uh, if, he's yes. a, if he's a peacemaker. I am. Um, are you really? Yes. I love it. So um, I, so again, this is, this is a tangent, but I am a seven on the Enneagram. Um, and sevens on the, if, you're, if your listeners are familiar with the Enneagram, sevens are notorious for avoiding pain. That is like all we want in life is simply to avoid pain. We want a happy, joyful existence. Uh, we want to party all the time. Uh, I, I mean, I could continue to list this, but for me, um, a big part of my story has been embracing, um, has been embracing lament and lament in particular within the church is not meant to be individual, uh, but lament is meant to be done in community. Um, and it's, it's meant to, to be done with the people of God. Um, Soon Chang Ra, Dr. Soon Chang Ra, he's out of North Park University in Chicago. He has a phenomenal book called Prophetic Lament. Uh, but really, it's, it's an invitation into lament. And um, lament uh, is then, it is mourning. Lament is uh, crying. Lament is uh, listening and learning. Lament is honoring. Uh, lament is sitting with that pain, um, even if it's the last thing we want to do, uh, because the truth is, is that, I mean, this goes back to the very beginning, but we are, we are changed by pain. And once we begin to see pain, once we begin to see an, um, injustice, we can't not see it anymore. Um, and the appropriate response is then to lament. Um, uh, my heart with, the, with and for the church, um, and maybe this is in particular for uh, the white church, um, but that, that we would begin to embrace this and that we would we would also begin to embrace the sight of God, um, because, uh, you know, I think it's really easy to center um, Christian narratives on the happy, happy, joy, joy um, type of uh, existence. And yet um, there is a deeper side, certainly to God, certainly to who Jesus was um, that, that uh, was more cerebral, that embraced all parts 
um, of the human existence, uh, which includes both joy and pain, which includes both sadness and um, hope. So what does it mean to hold both of those um, for this in and with this both and existence and to say, yes, I'm going to continue to move forward because I know that I am changed um, by this. And more so than me, that, that, or more so than the individual, that, um, that when and as we embrace lament and when and as we do this together, then change also can collectively happen within the systems. Well, and I think that ties in again is your, you know, the, the, there was a, there's a place for lament. And then you also talk about there's a place for, you know, righteous anger and, mm-hmm. you know, divine indignation with some of the experiences you've had uh, with just people, how they've interacted with you and your children um, and your husband. And, and talk a little bit about, you know, about that, too. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think some of this goes back to my goes back to my own tradition um, and growing up. But I, I think. um for a lot of us, and certainly for those of us who are white, I think we can sometimes be scared of anger. Mm. Um, and we can begin to think that anger, just like sadness or just like pain and or lament, is not an appropriate response. And yet anger is absolutely appropriate. Jesus flipped the flipping tables, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was that was an example of, um, I mean, that was something that legitimately happened. Um and so, I mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of that, which we have experienced, which I've experienced as in being part of an interracial marriage um, in raising mixed race kids, a lot of the comments and the stories come from ignorance. Um, and, and, and I did write, I, I did write candidly about that. There was, we lived in Seattle for a couple of years and one experience that I wrote about in the book um, there was a woman, a stranger, who began um, yelling at my children in the middle of um, the grocery store. I had this intense allergic reaction uh, to a medicine that I had gone on. And literally, it was the middle of winter, and I had hives covering my body. Um, I, was in, I was in shorts and a, t- and a T-shirt in, this was probably February, January or February, trying not to itch myself, just covered in red bumps all over. And here we were, it was, it was night. My husband was working late. I had to bring the boys to the store because I had to get this medicine. And, and so they, I mean, they were young. I think they were probably two and four or three and five at the time. Um, but they began acting as young little boys would um, when it is time for bed and they should be in their beds. Uh, but this woman began to yell at them in the middle of the store. And I didn't know what to do in the situation. I was absolutely appalled, um, but so was everybody else uh, who was standing in line and who was behind the counter and nobody said a word. Um, and I remember walking away and tears were streaming down my face and, and just going, what right do you have to say this? Um, and I wished her a good day because I, I didn't have, I didn't have a, I didn't have, I didn't know what to say also in that moment. And she replied with, well, I'm just glad you're getting a tax break for those things. And I was going, you just called my children things. And in talking a couple of days later um, with a friend who is also mixed race, mixed race, um, as, same, as well as my children are, um, she reminded me that, um, that a lot of times for young boys of color, um, and we can certainly look through um, the history portals, but there is an expectation that they will not be children um, or that they are not allowed to be children, but um, that, they, that they will be 
they will be older than they are. Um, and so that which um, might be allowed for um, children with white skin is not necessarily allowed um, within societal expectations for young kids who are black and brown and in particular for young boys. And that for me, that's part of the fire that exists for me now. When I think about that, when I think about what it means to, um, to live in a, in a world that, that truly is one of equity and justice, um, I think about my sons and um, there is, I, I think about my husband, but I think about all of our sons and I think about all of our daughters. And um, that is why I fight because there is a righteous anger within me that um, sees and notices and has experienced what it means, um, what it means for them. And, um, and, and that fires me up and uh, there's a holiness in that fire as well. I thought this was a really cool concept in your uh, chapter, A Beautiful Both And. You talk about um, shalom, wholeness. Shalom. So first of all, a shout out to uh, a woman that I believe is in your neck of the woods, Oshita Moore. Uh, she'd be a phenomenal guest on the show if you haven't had her already. Um, but a couple of years ago, I was, um, I, I was on a podcast with Oshita as a co-host. It was called uh, shalom in the city. Um, and she, Oshida has an entire book about this, uh, about shalom called um, Shalom Sisters. Um, but essentially, what does it mean to live in a world uh, that is not necessarily about peacekeeping, but is about peacemaking? What does it mean to live in a world um, that uh, confronts um, injustice, uh, that believes in the holy um, biblical concept of shalom? Um, and it means that uh, it, it means that we are living in a world of equity. It means um, that heaven is um, coming down to earth. But again, it also means that uh, we are creating, that we are being peacemakers here on earth. Um, we are we are creating out of love, um, and we are um, confronting the status quo. Uh, we are confronting anxiety. We are not merely attempting to peacekeep, but we are saying if this is God's ultimate vision for the world, um, then we as part of the beloved community are going to, um, we are going to, we are going to seek to create shalom and uh, we are going to be peacemakers in the process. So cool. Okay. So one last question, because I just thought uh, at the very end of the book, uh, you, you you say kind of the journey comes full circle and how justice is uh, for all of us. And mm-hmm. um, what does that look like from someone who uh, identifies as being white? How do we, how do we help find justice for all of us? And, and, and what, what's our role in this? I'm centering on the both and right now. Um, I think because I'm, it's part of what I'm thinking about for my next book, <laughs> but it's also the reality of living in a COVID-19 world. Um, and in that way, uh, when it, comes to um, justice and redemption. Uh, At the the root of justice, uh, one of the words um, at the root of justice is wholeness. And so this is wholeness that exists, again, for every single one of us. And it's um, for those of us who identify as white, I think part of our journey and part of our invitation um, is is to to realize that, um, yes, this is for 
um, our black and brown brothers and sisters. And for those who have not been given the same opportunities, who have not experienced equity and justice, um, like those of us who were born um, in white skin. Um, but we also say wholeness is for every single one of us. And so uh, just as we have to move beyond shame and guilt, we have to move beyond just doing this, so to speak, for um, one particular person. So we're not majoring then in white saviorism, but we're saying, yes, in the beloved community, um, there is uh, there is equity and justice for all. There is the particularities of personhood for every single one of us, just like the Samaritan woman are lifted up. And so just as we receive um, justice and wholeness, uh, we, we take that for ourselves, but we also take that and we give that to other people. Um, and so there exists a both and um, in it being reciprocal, but it also being um, part of the delight of who we are as God's beloved. Um, and just as we then want that for ourselves, we want that for other people. So it's, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here, if you could see me right now, um, I'm, I'm kind of doing this dance with my hand. So it's a both and it's like, it goes to us and it goes to other people and back again. And it, it just continues to do that. So uh, then we're also not operating out of shame. We're not operating out of guilt, but we're saying, yes, this is who I am. And this is God's intention for all of us. If you read about miracles in the Bible and you think, ah, that was back then, it doesn't happen now, well, maybe this book will help change your mind. It's called Miracles Happen. Joan Hunter is the author, and she's hanging out in the 30-Second Book Club next week.